if nothing else, we really want to create this community of people who just want to see a change. Sometimes you don't revolutionize everything, but you can chisel at, you know, the stuff that doesn't work <laughs> and little by little kind of nudge it in, a, in the right direction. It's really about mindset. There is nothing really mysterious about innovation. It's really just roll up your sleeves and just experiment and just try to do the best thing you can with what you have. Hello everybody, welcome back to Media Voices. There's no rest for the wicked, and since that seems to be about 80% of the media industry, that means we always have lots to talk about. I'm Chris Sutcliffe. I'm Esther Thorpe. <laughs> and after that introduction, that extract you've just heard is from Marcella Canova, who is editor at journalism.co.uk. So she's actually recently launched a newsroom innovation mentorship program, which will pair experienced industry professionals with local and regional journalists in the UK. And the aim there is to nurture innovation in areas like audience engagement, AI, editorial strategy and more. So we talked about what she's hoping to achieve with the programme, obviously how you can apply, um, and how she translated uh, events like News Rewired to a virtual event, and also why it's so important to support freelancers. Before that though, there's a nice little segue there because obviously you were talking there about supporting local and regional journalists, and there's a new report out that basically says that independent publications in the UK, particularly those smaller and kind of more local titles, are not getting, or rather they're not seeing the success that their reach would you know, suggest that they are entitled to. Well, can I just react really, really quickly to the word entitled? <laughs> yeah, go on. <laughs> because that, I think, is at the root of... Well, that, okay, we're going to get into this a little bit first. Yeah, yeah. The headline on this report doesn't reflect the actual report, I don't think, or the headline no. that I saw, because it's focused on this link between revenue and reach. And well, the, the lack of a link. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, you're not entitled to revenue just because you've got reach. You're the utter failure of canoes. <laughs> I was just about to say, I think Esther, you lapped on that as soon as news uh, was announced to have folded, that there is no particular, you know, you're not guaranteed revenue. Anyway, we should get into this report. So it's based on a survey done by the Public Interest <laughs> News Foundation um, because of concerns that the digital market is having a particularly harsh impact on them. Um, there's some really, really interesting stats in there, particularly around how those kind of independent titles are transitioning slowly towards reader revenue, how much headroom there is in terms of actually getting uh, philanthropic um, support from you know donors, and government, but there's, the, it's all kind of overshadowed by the fact that it's been absorbed into this great cult war again of publishers versus platforms, which is a real shame because that's not necessarily what the report is about. The Go headline on. stat here was that I think 60 of the UK's independent publishers that they surveyed earned what was it, a combined revenue of less than £5.4 million pounds in last yeah. year, despite reaching 10.1 million people a month. Mm. Um, so Press Gazette then drew this headline out that said the link between reach and revenue is totally broken because if you're reaching that many people a month and earning that little, therefore it's broken. And I, I, I think we've all got some issues with that conclusion, <laughs> haven't we? Well, it just seems like a very... It's not just Press Gazette. I saw other people leap to that conclusion. I think it is because we are primed to consider this now as part of that you know, ongoing platform struggle. Well, but it's it's the narrative that digital media has forced on us because mm. everyone is so focused on the metrics. Yeah, they're thinking, well, if I'm reaching, I <laughs> see this word, the, the, the 
company name Reach has destroyed this word for anyone <laughs> because you don't even know what you're talking about anymore. Yeah. I, I really felt it was it Char it was Charlotte Tobit that wrote this report. And the first paragraph she's trying to talk about reach the company, reach <laughs> the act of putting your stuff in front of people and reach as uh getting to a revenue target it's like oh my yeah, god the fact, that, it's as, the fact that that paragraph is as coherent as it is, is a real testament to her writing yeah, skill absolutely definitely is this has become a metrics driven conversation almost like there's a scientific formula mm. that if you reach x people you will make y money and that's not true you know what how come there's there's uh, newsletters that only go out to a thousand people that make hundreds of thousands of pounds. Mm. It's because they're the right people. This is what struck me about the um, about the piece as well, is that actually smaller publications shouldn't and aren't chasing reach anyway. Um, and there was a really interesting graph that, that we're linked to that actually half of the revenue for independent publishers is from memberships or donations. Mm. And at that point, you don't want to be... It doesn't matter if you reach a million people. But just like you're saying, actually, a hundred of the right people is far more valuable yeah, than just a million definitely. eyeballs. Like, and, and in terms of making money, that's, those hundred people are where the money comes from. And if, if you've got a small but loyal paying audience, then the link between reach and revenue should be broken for you. The, I mean, just to play a, bit, a little bit of devil's avocado here, there's, the report does acknowledge that um, potentially scale isn't as important to local titles. It says the digital economy's bias towards scale is not only contributing to a market failure, it is widening the democratic deficit, leaving some communities disenfranchised and vulnerable to misinformation and disinformation. But even with that and the recommendations that policymakers need to kind of regulate that relationship between news publishers and platforms, why are we still having that conversation no, then? That's, well, that's going to say that. The point is this comes back to it, it's the duopoly's fault. I, mm. I'm not saying that's what the report says, but the reporting around this seems to be this is the duopoly's fault. Mm. And yeah, maybe it is a job his fault, but saying that isn't going to fix anything. We've got to find a different way of fixing this. And that, I think, is where this report is really, really interesting mm. because it gets right under the hood of some of these organisations. You know, their median income, median income is £40,000. Well, if you've got five staff, that's a nightmare. If it's just you or you and a reporter, you've maybe got something to go with it. So it's there's loads people can take from this mm. in terms of how they organize their business and again what Esther was talking about where that money comes from do you need to do you need to put out a better membership message do you need to look for philanthropic giving do you need to get grants all these things help or will help people run their businesses better so the 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 actual mission of this report is brilliant yeah it's just this weird conclusion that it's Google's <laughs> fault. It's like what? And actually, actually on that, there's um, I mean, I'm I, I don't want to say I'm a defender of the duopoly, but when, when it comes to this conversation, I am, and that's that there, there are quite a few of these publications that wouldn't exist if there weren't platforms with which to yeah. to put their message out. And I think that there was um, uh, Axios put a really interesting piece out this week that, that said that you know advertising is no longer something that the media has any sort of entitlement to or, or right to kind of control. And actually advertisers can advertise anywhere now. And that's just one of the beauties of, of the internet and, and the digital age. And blaming Google and Facebook for taking that when there was, 
like me- media had no right to that anyway. It's just that they happen to be the only ones that Us, have yeah. the, the reach. You I feel like we have this conversation every couple every couple of months, we and don't. the conversation hasn't moved on because people yeah. are so entrenched in their views around this, and so are we to some extent. Um, I th- God, I just I, I don't even really know how we can get the you know this, the train off this track. I think stop blaming Google and Facebook and look at other ways to support yourself. If and I think for a lot of these publishers, it's got to be memberships. It's got to be it's got to be reader revenue. And other mixes of revenue streams. Mix of six. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And now onto the news in brief. And speaking of reach not equating to revenue, there is no news. Um, So that's K-N-E-W-Z, Extreme Cool News 3000. The News Corp aggregator has closed down after 18 months with a statement on the site stating it certainly had provenance, but not profits. And so we bid news farewell. I saw so many commentators. Our friend Adam Timworth uh, basically said, if even people in the news industry had forgotten about this by the time it closed down, then you know it was doing something wrong. And Esther, you've, you've, you really like the, the design of it, at least. You can, you'll say that they really nailed the look and feel of the site, though. I mean, yeah, if the intent was to give people a migraine within 30 <laughs> seconds of landing on it, absolutely. I, I also, I've obviously got no proof, but I, I have doubts about those millions of visitors. I, I, I genuinely don't know who could sit on that site with the yellow and black and everything going on for more than, I, I, I certainly think there are millions of people is, is being generous. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I completely agree. It's, it's, it's suspect, isn't it? And I, I said on Twitter, I think that it was never meant to be anything more than a bargaining chip in their kind of ongoing struggle with other aggregators. It was, you know, oh, look, we've built one of our own. We don't need you. And as soon as they sort of inked that deal with Google, News Corp suddenly said, well, why are we spending money on this thing that's basically not making an impact? Rolling Stone, which I haven't seen for a very long time, is getting a dedicated UK edition more than 50 years after the first attempt. I guess that means that someone 50 years ago tried to put Rolling Stone in the UK. There's mm. a piece of magazine history I didn't know. <laughs> uh, Stream Publishing, which publishes Attitude, has signed an exclusive deal with Penske Media, which bought Rolling Stone not that long ago, to launch the brand in print and online in the UK. That'll be an interesting one. Attitude does some great stuff. So mm. hmm. I gather that first launch 50 years ago was sponsored by Mick Jagger. Oh, really? Yeah, it was... It, How have it, I never heard of this? 50 years. I'm surprised he hadn't, yeah. I know he's old, but Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> and talking of magazines, Mel Magazine has been acquired by Recurrent Ventures months after its financial relationship with Dollar Shave Club came to an end. That was a sort of... It was basically sponsored content of it, wasn't it? But it ended up... It was, yeah. yeah, it was sort of independent of that. So the majority of staff have been rehired, which is great, and Josh Schollmeyer will remain as editor-in-chief and will now be able to pursue monetization options. So I know they had plans in the pipeline to launch some um, paid newsletters, so I think we're all quite excited about what they're going to launch. Yeah, this is very cool. He's a great guy. He's got some amazing ideas, and I I think we should watch this one. This will be fun. Nice. And the information is launching a new publication about batteries and electric vehicles. Obviously a huge growth market. The information is well ahead of the curve on actually launching new products around these verticals. So the electric is going to launch as a weekly newsletter and email updates, and it's going to be run as a standalone business with its own subscription. So I think another smart bet there from the information. When I first read this, this this is this is more about me than anyone else. I thought batteries. What the hell can you have a publication about batteries? 
No, I think the, the interesting the interesting thing here is that it's actually this is their first standalone publication that's actually, so it's going to be run entirely separately from the information itself. Evening Standard has reported a £17 million loss after COVID-19, more than half its revenues last year. Paper normally is available free to pick up in tube stations in London. And is it anywhere else? Can you pick it uh, up? Yeah, yeah, you can, they've got uh, hubs in other UK cities. Mm-hmm. But anyway, with people working from home, well, you know their story. Um, £17 million is kind of not great, but... Um, there was yeah. fourteen million pound lost last the year before, so <laughs> I don't know. I was going to say that's I'm, a good I, result for the evening stand. I, yeah, I was going to say I know it's not. I know that the pandemic hasn't been helpful, but it hasn't been. Its business case has not been secure for quite some time. Yeah, this Probably. is one of, the, one of those cases where I thought the headline was perhaps attributing it to something else because mm. the, the chart that shows I think it's like since two thousand seventeen. It, it was making sort of very, very slim profits before that. And then it just plummets. It was like 10, 12, 14, 17. So yes, COVID hasn't helped, but that's not that's not the root issue here. Yeah. Uh, and Reach PLC are recruiting 76 sports journalists across the country in a major expansion of their sports coverage. They're also planning to focus on more niche sports, although the definition of that is basically not football. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so I mean that's that's good. Um Reach Reach have been investing a lot recently. Yeah. It's not just sports journalists, there's been quite a few I mean that's good. I was yeah. to go on Twitter the other day, shared a link to the Reach Jobs page, and it was mental how many jobs are on there. It's just a, it's amazing. So they're definitely putting money on. It's great. And I think that actually building up that kind of that niche sports uh, kind of ownership of that is so smart, particularly when you look at kind of that, that race to acquire sports subscribers from The Athletic, mm-hmm. from a bunch of places. You yeah. know, in the newsletter I've linked to Sinclair in the US, basically taking over a bunch of regional sports uh, columnists and publications. This just makes so much sense to me. It's very smart. Uh, moving on, this this honestly could probably be and probably should be its own story. It just broke too late for us to really get to grips with it. A BBC non-exec director, Sir Robbie Gibb, has tried to block the appointment of Jess Brammer, previously of HuffPost UK, as overseer of BBC News Channels because it would, quote, harm relationships between the BBC and government. So it's obviously a major test of the BBC's um, independence. People have since come out and said, in fact, it's because, you know, she has been asking probing questions. She has stood up for Nady White in a bunch of uh, different instances. So, I mean, it's it's pathetic. B, it's a real, real test of Tim Davies' BBC's um, independence and its, and its, you know, remit to be completely objective. Uh, worryingly, it's also been pointed out that he's also on Culture Secretary Oliver Dowden's panel looking at the future of the BBC as well. Calls for his resignation from both the BBC and this panel. Um, but God, that's, that is horrific if so. Just blocking a journalist from... Who would be really good at it from a position just because you don't like the politics? I was going to say, that was my first pathetic. thought, is she, she would be cracking. Mm. I mean, she's done it before, and, and not in that job specifically, but she was on Newsnight before. Mm-hmm. Robbie Gabb, though, I liked him much better when he was on like, oh, BG's. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I, I nearly said, I nearly issued a moratorium on that exact joke before we started recording. <laughs> I, you know, the, the, line in this, the line in this story that just absolutely grind my gears is... The appointment, this appointment would shatter the government's fragile trust in the BBC. What? The, yeah. the government's trust in the BBC trust to do what? 
just to follow orders. Absolute. I'm not even swearing. I'm just. I'm beyond it with this one. Yeah. Totally <sighs> pathetic. Gannett's USA Today has officially joined the paywall party. <laughs> That's a, after the Tory party thing that we've just had there, <laughs> the paywall party sounds much better. Um, so much of its content is going to stay free, and I think there's a lot of people saying, well, if you've got so much in front of the paywall, how's this going to work? But they're looking at exclusive investigations. Or they, USA Today does a lot of visual stuff anyway, so they're talking about enhanced visual explainers and other ways of storytelling. This will be an interesting one. This isn't like the sun going behind a paywall because it actually has got real journalism in it. <laughs> but... <laughs> But it is a, a you know a, light, a a lighter type of paper going behind a paywall, and it'll be interesting to see if this works. Advertisers have begun shifting spend to Android after huge numbers of people shockingly declined to be tracked with Apple's <laughs> new iOS changes. Um, so advertisers say that they've basically lost a lot of the granularity that justified the high prices on iOS ads. Um, not surprising, I guess. And honestly, I, I can't see it being too long before. Um, Android asks the same questions. It's Definitely. like 70% of people are turning down the, these uh, Well, fig- figures vary. There, there was something they said only 9% of people opted in. Um, this oh. particular piece reckoned that 33% opted in. Um, but it's it's certainly not, not many. I mean, in a way, it's ridiculous because everyone's saying, oh, privacy, privacy, privacy. And then the advertisers are going, yeah, we support more privacy in a bit. For now, we're going to go over here where there's no privacy. It's just weird. This week, I spoke with Marcella Canova, who is editor at journalism.co.uk. She's just launched a virtual scheme to empower UK local and regional journalists through mentorship. So I started by asking her where the idea for the programme had come from. Well, the idea came up in the middle of the pandemic. And what we realised is that loads of people, one, are isolated in their homes, two, loads and loads of things in the newsrooms need to change because you know the, the whole systems and processes have been just thrown up in the air and people needed to find new ways of doing their job uh, but also you know the, the support network just just disappeared pretty much overnight we all started to work from home and you didn't have people to chat to you know the um water cooler uh, moments as they call it and uh, you know and suddenly you know, people wanted to do something new, they craved the change, but there, there were suddenly few people around them they could have these meaningful chats with. And so we thought, well, let's make the best out of it, of this new acquired skills, and be actually able to do something um, just um, virtually and pair journalists with uh, someone who went through the whole kind of innovation circle in their newsrooms and, and can provide them with support. So we want to help people journalists but also other people who work in smaller regional newsrooms to do something differently and um, unlike many other mentorship schemes that are very often focused on sort of broader career or, or you know broader skills we want to base it around a project so say you are in i don't know preston and you want better audience engagement um, very often um, journalists don't necessarily have someone in their newsrooms who have the skill they need. They also don't want to really put themselves forward because no one wants to look stupid if you know you get it wrong or you just don't really know what you're doing. 
And we are all winging it, by the way. I really want to reassure everyone. Yes. <laughs> no one has an innovation plan, just swoops in and, and you know, gets it done. Um, and, see, you know, it, it's really not easy to, to come to your, you know, editor or director and say, oh, listen, I have a fantastic plan to employ artificial intelligence to, I don't know, edit images. <laughs> listen to me, right? And uh, so we want to give these, um, these innovators, I want to call them, uh, just the support they need, the encouragement they need, but also reality check. Because it's really useful if you can just talk to someone who did it in another newsroom and I can tell you, yes, you are on the right path or that's, that's completely wrong. And so the scheme was born. So when it comes to mentors, what, what are you looking for in mentors? Are you looking for sort of a, a wide range of skills or are you, are you looking for people who really specialise in, in individual sections to, to sort of match up? We were looking for people who have quite particular skills. And as I said, um, we want this to be quite focused. And I mean, even the structure of the scheme uh, is six hours is in six months. So there is quite a finite um, date by which, you know, this this scheme will, will close, at least for this cycle. I mean, obviously people carry on, you know, having the relationship or friendship um, way past way past the scheme but um i think it's you know every journalist like a good deadline don't we so um a project will not get done unless you have you know every month i know someone will be checking on me will checking on my progress i need to update them or if i promise i do something i have to do it and a bit so of accountability you, exactly you know sometimes you know that's that's the only thing you really need just have a you know accountability buddy who says so, you know, did you contact this supplier or whatever? You know, did you have this conversation? And, um, and these six hours and six months, I think will help people to stay focused on the project and just, just get it off the ground. You know, you might not revolutionize your newsrooms in six months, obviously, uh, but at least you get that, that first move <laughs> you know, to, to yeah, get yeah. something started, to get the ball rolling, and then hopefully you can, uh, you can build up on that. Yeah. Um, I noticed for applicants, um, you require five years working in a newsroom. Is that just so that you kind of get people of a certain level? Well, there, <laughs> there, was, there was a bit of a debate around this uh, criterion. So why, why not um, sort of younger people and then younger in, in terms of experience? Um, I think it's sort of five-ish years. If it's four and a half, it's still fine. I mean, it's not, yeah. that, <laughs> it's not that strict. But the reason why you need to have some experience is because if you want to find a solution to a problem, you need to have certain knowledge of that problem. Usually people are in a, in a good place to start to, you know, be able to take a step back and say, okay, so what is the industry problem? What is the organization's problem? How can I actually solve it uh, without, you know, having that anxiety about their own beginning, their own career, their own uh, sort of reputation that might, might not go wrong. Um, and the program is supported by, I think it's United Robots and Utopia Analytics. I'm, I'm just quite curious how that support and that kind of almost sponsor relationship works. Mm -hmm. So, you know, one thing that we realise, uh, I mean, I think generally with, with companies in the sector, is that they are less and less keen to just advertise. Um, loads of companies want to contribute to something meaningful, a, a true impact. So yes, you know, you still spread the word. Yes, you still advertise a company, uh, you, you, you know, spread the word, but you know, they, they can be part of something that can actually help industry 
to change or to move in the right direction. And um, the, the way it came about is that we, we had a chat. I mean, you know, like, like certainly at every other newsroom, we have sort of pool of, of people we encounter regularly at the events or who, who support other part of, of our business. And I said, hey, you know, we are doing this scheme. This is why we're doing it. What do you think about it? And, and they said, you know, yes, I want to be part of that. Yeah, it, it's just interesting, I suppose, that sponsors are moving towards being kind of more, yeah, they, they want to be seen as, as making a difference rather than just having their sort of logo and, and um, you know, stand or something. It's interesting. But, you know, I think it's also our responsibility as the industry to give um, these companies an opportunity to participate in something more meaningful than slapping your logo on a website. Uh, because in the end of the day, I think, you know, people, people, our readers and listeners, are becoming increasingly logo blind you know it's just all the adverts are just kind of there you know if you can if you can click the magic x button and make it disappear fantastic if not you just completely <laughs> cancel it from your, <laughs> from your vision field so um you know it it's I mean, everyone likes to have an impact. I don't know anyone who says, oh, I absolutely don't care about the impact I have in the industry. People want to to help, really. And, and you know, we, we create opportunities that also allow, you know, the wider ecosystem to, to participate in just, just moving the, the industry in the right direction. Yeah. So if our listeners are listening to this and thinking they actually quite fancy uh, signing up for that, um, what do they need to do to sign up for it? Super easy. Um, go on our website or anywhere else where you have seen uh, this advertiser. There is a link in the podcast. Anyway, all you need to do is to fill a form uh, with your contact details. And uh, I, there is a little field where you need to explain in 100 words what innovative idea you want to um, you know, start in your, in your newsroom. One word on that. People very often think of innovation as they have to just invent a new computer or whatever you know innovation is not necessarily apple and, and new york times sometimes improving things you know find a new way of doing things or just you know simplify something that, that is innovation in itself you know you don't need to just create something that has never ever existed you can also do some you know something that exists you can just make it much much better and that's also with innovation so please do please design up it, it shouldn't take more than 10 minutes tops <laughs> and if you have pretty super clear idea you will just bash it out <laughs> it <laughs> say we, we love a word count <laughs> yeah i'll um i'll make sure we pop a link to that in the in the Thank notes you. as well on the please, website yeah, please guys do sign up and you know if nothing else we really want to create this community of people who just want to see a change and who you know it, sometimes you don't revolutionize everything but you can chisel at you know the stuff that doesn't work <laughs> and little by little kind of nudge it in the, in the right direction it's really about mindset there is nothing really mysterious about innovation it's really just roll up your sleeves and just experiment and just try to do the, the best thing you can with what you have yeah um, and talking of innovation um, news rewired was a few weeks ago and i think you did it virtually this year didn't you so how how did you go about planning that Right. Um, well, we obviously decided to do virtual uh, because of all the uh, COVID restrictions. First thing we do, we split the conference into sessions. And the, the reason behind it is very simple. I do not believe anyone is able to stay in front of the computer for a day watching the conference. It Definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's, it's unfair to put this on, on attendees who want to do it, on speakers who will, you know, miss out on, on 
for the interaction and it's 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 not working i mean i haven't seen a single event where, where this was working so what we decided to do was to split a day uh, one day conference into four two hour sessions and these were taking place on tuesday and thursday um sort of afternoon three to five and you know what, what we tried to do is to offer just the the most optimal possible time for everyone to just tune in you know, you can do two hours, especially if it's kind of engaging and interactive session. Are you doing another one in later on this year? Yes, we always do. Um, so right now it's about October. Uh, dates to um, to be revealed. Uh, keep an eye on a, on the website. <laughs> um, there is a big debate about you know physical and and hybrid and all virtual. Um, I think we will decide in a few weeks' time, probably yeah. looking at how the pandemic is going. And on the one hand, I know people are craving that physical contact and they just want to come together in a physical space and see their peers and you know and talk and just have that interaction again that we've been missing so much. On the other hand, I'm like I have a nightmare of sending out that email someone was you know testing positive with covid you know everyone get tested everyone you have to quarantine or something or worse having someone actually getting ill and and you know potentially it affecting their life so you know we all need to be conscious we, we can be part of a problem and it's not because we can that we should so i think we we wait until sort of august time to um decide whether we invite people into a closed physical space um because there's a problem with conference venues in it i mean the yeah <laughs> well I, I know i know there are yeah there are quite a few companies that are hesitant as well because especially when it's an industry event if you send your staff you're then responsible if they get sick 100 percent. and you know it's not for me it's not only the sort of the whole legal and logistical obligations that's coming with it but just you know just humanly i just couldn't bear if any of the attendees or, or their loved ones would get ill as a result of them being at this one event. You know, we, we are there for the community, we want to help them, not decimate it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, 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 re, you know, it's really, really tough. And I suppose we, we just see kind of how the, you know, infection rate and everything is going, you know, would we require vaccination pass? I mean, I don't know. It's, I think, yeah, we, we just wait to see sort, sort of how it's going and, and how um, the infections are um, progressing. But the event will certainly take place either hybrid or online um, because the, this conversation and the, the knowledge sharing just needs to keep on going. Yeah. Um, and on top of all that, you also coordinate a lot of the training courses for journalism.co.uk. So I'm just curious, how do you decide which ones to offer? And, and I suppose if you've seen any change in what people are taking up over the last year? Mm -hmm. So... You know, here shout out to Jasmine, who is really the one who's doing the bulk of the hard work. <laughs> I'm the kind of person who just looks at it and said, "Yeah, okay." Um, so you know, ninety-seven, eight percent of work is done by Jasmine. So, you know, hats off to Jasmine. Um, uh, in regarding topics, um, you have the kind of evergreen core skills that are always popular: uh, sub editing, um, you know, mobile uh, journalism, uh, social media. Instagram, um, you know, these are skills that loads and, you know, more and more journalists want to pick up. Um, then you have the kind of slightly original <laughs> courses. <laughs> we have one on, uh, for example, career building, especially um, 
during COVID. Uh, we had one on social video, which, um, you know, wasn't really that popular, I suppose, uh, over, you know, just, just a few years ago. And, and now it became really massive. So um, videos you see on TikTok or, or uh, Instagram reels, and you know, how to perhaps communicate news content through uh, social video. It's, it's trickier than it sounds. Um, so there is a course on that. So we try to follow trends. Uh, we see where, uh, where new skills are needed, but crucially, who is actually able to teach them? <laughs> because it's one thing to say, oh, we need to you know, improve newsletter strategy, but then who are you going to ask to do this newsletter course? You know, it's not because someone says, oh, you know, I'm interested in the topic, then the delivery of the course will be good. So then there is the whole other round of looking for the right person who has sufficient knowledge and authority and, and obviously willingness to, to teach other journalists. So that's, that's about the process. Um, we are looking to, you know, for example, data journalism used to be really popular and the, the, the interest, I have to say, cooled down somehow. Okay. Which, I mean, I hope pandemic would kind of bring it back. Um, so we are looking at another course about the use of statistics and data, which is pain point for massive um, number of, of uh, journalists. So we, you know, we do try to follow trends. We kind of go to interests and, and it, it fluctuates. You know, newsletters was a sellout course and there were fewer um, fewer attendees at the, at the last one. So sometimes it goes up, sometimes it goes down. Which is which is quite interesting. <laughs> I suppose I've seen a lot about how data journalism is really important this year, but I suppose that doesn't necessarily drive people wanting to pick it up as a skill. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that, you know there's something some skills that are really intimidating. Even something like mobile journalism, you know, the, I mean, I can't even believe there are still journalists who who would not do video um, <laughs> with their pieces. You know, especially if you're a local reporter. I mean, video is so. You know, it's so important. As, as a podcaster, I understand the terror of video. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right, but but this is you know this is where you can really learn something in a you know safe space, small, pretty fun groups, and you know, again, you don't start producing fantastic videos tomorrow, but you can start to dip your toe. You know, you can do that one video, you know, one video a month. <laughs> See how yeah. it goes. You know, and little by little, you you learn it, and this is why I think these training courses are so good because they are short and very specialized. You get tasks, you, you, you start to learn. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's safe, you know, it's outside of your working space, you know. The worst comes to worst, your colleagues don't have to see any of the disasters you ever produce <laughs> on the course. And, you know, it will not impact your professional reputation, but you have an opportunity to learn something, something new. Um, and I noticed the site is actually one of the few that offers, I suppose it's a directory and, and a bit of a growing community for freelancers. Is that something you see as being particularly important at the moment? 100%. And, you know, we've been supporting freelancers uh, since forever. Uh, it's such an important part of journalism. And I don't think we talk about freelancing enough uh, and, and just how uh, important this community is to, to uh, the media. So what we offer freelancers is a space to obviously advertise their services, but also uh, we offer them, you know, editorial coverage or, you know, podcasts and they just, you know, all round help to not only do their jobs better, but just to feel more comfortable in their sort of freelancing career. 
but also to um, offer some solutions to some very concrete problems um, that you encounter as, as, you know, as a one man or one woman band. But also um, very often we hear from freelancers, it can be quite isolating to sort of work on your own and work from home. Mm. And loads of freelancers miss that, you know, colleagues or, or, you know, community. So try to provide that as well, you know, just by giving them, you know, a bit more, bit more space. I mean, we're talking to their featuring um, experiences and just try keep this community sort of connected with, with each other and with the world of work. Lots of people are choosing freelancing even for a part of their lives, you know, so it doesn't mean you have to be forever freelancer or never freelancer. Sometimes it makes sense during, you know, certain certain periods of, of people's lives. And I think it has to be a viable choice. And either it works for you or, or it doesn't. But, you, you, you know, someone needs to be there to help you fight, you know, to, to fight your corner, to, to help you out with even just the logistics. You know, where do you advertise your services? The directories are so, so important. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you're often covering the latest things publishers and journalists are up to. So uh, from your perspective, what do you think are some of the big areas of opportunity over the next few years? I think the first one will be covering climate. And we had uh, Wolfgang Blau from uh, Reuters Institute who was talking about it at News Rewired. Um, it, it's a massive topic and you know, COVID is, is here to stay, but the interest in coverage of COVID, little by little, is probably going to cool off as, you know, <laughs> as we are kind of emerging from the pandemic. And, you know, climate is increasingly important as, well, as a problem <laughs> we as a humanity have. And media are waking up to, to this reality. So climate is definitely an opportunity where as a young journalist or, or you know, someone who's looking for a new career path, that is definitely a um, beat where I would look to go because that coverage will only increase. And the, the knowledge, you know, knowledge of data, you know, science, um, you need people who are actually able to, to cover climate in, in a way it deserves to be covered. It's not a bit like any other. Uh, so it's, it, it can be quite specialist. Another opportunity where I see is definitely technology. I mean, there's nothing um, particularly groundbreaking, but um, using artificial intelligence to pick up some of the, the most boring tasks of, <laughs> of newsrooms <laughs> and actually helping journalists to almost go back to what they are able to do the best, which is telling stories and, and, and reporting on reporting news. Um, you know, we are the, the more sophisticated technology is and the more opportunities to do something we have, we just do something else rather than our, our actual jobs as journalists. So, um, you know, I welcome solutions that are taking some of this burden off of journalists' shoulder and, and just help them to just go back to storytelling and to the actual jobs. Uh, so, you know, be it um, whether it's comment moderation, uh, whether it's, you know, reporting on, um, we um, you can um, read a series that we are now running on journalism.co.uk, sort of artificial intelligence for the dummies, for people who don't necessarily want to know anything about the tech, but what it does. And, you know, you see papers all around the world using machines to do anything from just gathering large data sets and kind of process them and you know, just, just do all the things you, you, you don't need to be doing because they take for absolute ever. You know, you can go through <laughs> spreadsheets for six hours a day looking for 
odd spikes in, I don't know, property sales. Uh, but you can let the machine do that. And once you get a story lead, you're like, oh, what happened here? I can go in and, and, you know, check it out. And that's where you can do really, really good stories. So um, employing um, artificial intelligence powered tools in, um, in newsroom is definitely an area where I would, where I would look as a, as a newsroom employee. The last thing we ask all our guests is what's the last thing you read or saw that really affected you? Book, <laughs> book, book, book. And um, there is one called Crucial Conversations. Uh, but essentially it is about learning to talk, which you know you would assume you can do. <laughs> but uh, just having conversation with someone, um, you know, you can identify kind of everything that we that is unhelpful that we are doing and that contributes to misunderstanding or people getting angry or you know or taking offense and and also your own understanding of what other people are saying it's it's fascinating i never there were so many things i never really thought about but sometimes simply how you say something change completely the the, the meaning of you know what the other person hears you you have actually said i recommend this book to absolutely everyone and don't forget that if you want to support us on a regular basis, you can go across to our Ko-Fi page, which has a monthly subscription option, which if you donate any money, it will go towards improving our sound quality. It will go towards any projects that we've got coming up. It will basically go towards making Media Voices a better... Wine beer. <laughs> well, I didn't want to give the game away, but yes. So you can go to co-fi.com slash media voices and you can either donate on a one-off basis or you can do it monthly. Um, regardless of how you choose to support us, it's always very, very gratefully received. So thank you very much. Uh, if you're desperate for more of this madness, then you can look at our website. There's lots of stuff on there, voices.media. Or daily, you can sign up for a newsletter which goes out first thing in the morning and gives you four of the most important media stories to start your day as curated by us. Of course, there's a link to Of course, there's a link to our latest episode and anything else that we've got going in. So if you're if you get a bit bored in the middle of the week and you want to have some more media voices in your life, get that daily newsletter. <laughs> But until next week, when we'll be back with another fantastic guest and more of our unique media analysis, <laughs> goodbye. See you later. Bye-bye.